Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be with you all. Um, if you're here for the first time, you probably want to know where we're at. We're, we're back in the book of Revelation. We spent our summer in the Psalms of Ascent, and last week we hopped right back into Revelation. And so we just want to have a few reminders always in front of us about the book of Revelation. Sometimes it's a scary book, and, and often it's, it's intimidating, and so some of us might not like to turn there. We sort of like the New Testament, leave out Revelation, some of the Old Testament, leave that out as well, but we, we want to be emboldened by Revelation. God gave it to us for a blessing. It asks for obedience over fear, and, and we don't need to understand every comprehensive detail, and there's a lot of it. It's reminiscent of Old Testament prophecy. You're going to hear things from Jeremiah and Isaiah, captured, reframed by John as he gets this vision, this image of Christ's return. And so we don't want to take this like a court transcript and, and have little actors in our minds. We can make sure we sort of have it all dialed in in a very literalistic interpretation. We want it to stoke up our imaginations, to stir up our anticipation for Christ's return so that we can have hope, hope that Christ will come and that causes us to be obedient as we wait for King Jesus to return. So with that, let's read the passage together. Revelation chapter 18. It's a long one. Buckle up. Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice saying, another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, 
that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the, is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they, drew, and they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew, it, grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, this picture of your judgment to come, your judgment on Babylon is, it's scary. It's dark. We hear weeping and mourning. We see fire. And there is much in it that, that can scare us, that can scare us and, and make us not want to, to think of it, to think of that day, that hour when your judgment will come. But may we hold on to that image, hold on to it confidently, knowing that that judgment is not against us, where there is fire and smoke and crying and wailing, where all the gold and silver and precious things that Babylon calls worthy, calls glory, when those are all taken away, Father, we stand secure in your hand. By the blood of Christ, we have been judged. We have received his righteousness. He has received your wrath in our place. Would you remind us of that truth when we read such intimidating things? Brother, would you hold us up and also point out where Babylon lives in our hearts and lives? Help us to see how to live righteously before you because Christ has lived righteously and died righteously on our behalf. Thank you for your love for us in Christ. Would you, by your spirit, apply this word now to our lives, build us up into the body that is Christ the church, your church. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we're going to focus on just two points as we work our way through this text. It's a longer text. Try to keep it simple-ish. Judgment explained is point number one. Judgment explained, and we're going to look at uh, the vast majority of the text with that, verses 1 through 19. And then we're going to wrap things up with judgment reframed, verses 20 through 24. So judgment explained and judgment reframed. As we've moved through the texts of Revelation and we've hit these later chapters, we've seen with greater clarity God's coming judgment. And so now we're going to get a picture of Babylon, not just like who she is personified. That was our last chapter, chapter 17, Babylon, the the prostitute. Now we're going to see what's going on in Babylon. What's all this wealth and power all about? Babylon is a picture of sin, immorality, and evil as God's judgment is enacted. His glorious wrath on our behalf upon all evil. So there's a lot of action, there's a lot of darkness, but we want to hold on to this, that God wants to encourage his people that his judgment against sin is a call for them to lay down their own swords and to conquer with him. So let's look at point number one, judgment explained. Verse 1, another angel comes down from heaven, much like one of the angels who have been working, pouring out God's wrath from the bowls in the the prior chapters. Yet this angel is sent more clearly to show what the true nature of Babylon is. This angel is shining bright, it says. It's a reflection of God's own glory. And the angel comes with real authority. That word is not a throwaway word. The, The beast in earlier chapters, again, has authority, but it's like a puppet authority. It's been granted for a short time that God might show who the true power is. And so this angel comes down and he shines a light on Babylon and he cries out what her true state is. He says that Babylon is fallen. Fallen is Babylon. And we hear Revelation 14 and we hear Isaiah chapter 21. We've heard this before. And now he's going to tell us what it looks like and what it really is. It's not a city. The city is gone. It's a dwelling place for demons, for unclean spirits, for unclean birds and beasts. It's like the wilderness of of chapter 17. It's a place full of scavengers and wild beasts. Now what happens when John's hearers get this message in about AD 100? Well, Babylon serves as a picture of Rome. Rome and her opulence, her power, her wealth, her stability. She is untouchable. No one is going to ever take down Rome. But God says judgment is coming. And so we're given a why in verse 3. Sexual immorality, the endless pursuit of wealth no matter the cost. People are lunging after idols. People are lunging after comfort. There's just filth everywhere. But we hear another voice in verse 4. An angel cries out, uh, excuse me, a voice from heaven says, come out of her, my people. And there are some commentators that say this could be an angel speaking on behalf of God. Prefer to think that it's God himself, in my opinion. He has called people his own. 
And yet there's this curious understanding that they are citizens of Babylon. Being a citizen of Babylon means that you are prone into falling into sin. Just like all of the sins we've already heard described. And we hear this come out and it should reverberate in our ears if we've been flipping through our Bibles occasionally. In our Old Testament, God called his people to come out of Egypt. God called his people to come out from the nations around them in the promised land. Don't be touched by their uncleanness. Don't be touched by their immorality and their idol worship. Come out. Come out. God speaks to confirm what the first angel has already said. Babylon is broken. Babylon is beyond redemption. Her sins are heaped high. But before judgment comes pouring out, God has called Christians in her midst to come out. Babylon, for all her wealth and power, we would think it would be a, a peaceful place. They'd use that power, that money, for good. They would, they would structure the city to promote the, the best for everyone. But it's not a peaceful place. It's not just excessiveness and, and lavish living We hear that God is going to pay back Babylon for what she's done to others. Look look there at verse 6. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And then you hear this word double. Uh, Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. And then the Greek, it's not like twice over, but it's like looking in a mirror. This, this, this woman, Babylon, personified the queen. She's going to see and receive what's coming to her for all she's done. Taking, enslaving, worshiping herself instead of worshiping God. And so God puts a voice to all of this in, in verses 7 and 8. Babylon is speaking as this queen. I'm never going to go down. How could I? Why would I? I'm the eternal one. I'm I'm the powerful one. I'm the glory. I'm life itself. And God judges her for her proud certainty. She says, death's not going to knock at my door. And it is. And it will repay her in a day, in an hour. She will be gone. And then this truth that is revealed about Babylon and its, and its existence, all those who profited from her now start to cry out. There's like a chorus of lament. First we have kings, and then we have merchants, and then we have shipmasters or sailors, those who were trading in the waters around Babylon. They're going to start crying out for what was. So merchants who who sought refuge in wealth and goods, that's how they built their reputation, that's how they built their power and their name. Verses 11 through 17 describe what's going on in their minds as they see the flames and the smoke in Babylon. They're going to wail as every single status symbol, every coveted treasure burns before their eyes. This isn't like the Great Depression where... Oh, we, we lost almost everything, you know, we put, the, put what we had, the old dresser and, uh, you know, our, our silverware and plates into the back of the truck and we headed to California. There is nothing left. This is like Job, 
who's, who's got just a, a piece of a pot shard left to, to scrape his wounds. There is nothing for them to revisit, to regain control, to regain capital, investment, wealth, status, identity. It's gone. In John's day, Rome held so much wealth and materialism that no one could conceive of it being wiped out, taken away. Rome will always stand. Their power and wealth, it wasn't always used for good ends. It was used for entertainment and to better their own existence in a way that they glorified themselves. And it came at the expense of other people. These are the people that brought us the Colosseum, if you forget. Let's take some slaves, let's take some people who are vulnerable, and let's make them fight to the death with wild beasts and each other so that we can be entertained. And I hope this isn't too shocking to you all, but our American context is not far from Rome. What do we have? We have lots and lots of money. We have lots and lots of power. Lots and lots of entertainment. A report from last year said, uh, if I were to give every one of you some credit card debt, totaling the uh, equivalent of all that the U.S. has, each of you would get $3,000 of debt, just in credit card debt. That's fun. And we take all this money, and we buy stuff, and we get more and more stuff to fill up our houses. And what do we do? When we run out of space, we go and we get storage units so that we can have more stuff. 2024, it's estimated that $45 billion will be made by the self-storage industry. That's how much stuff we have. We just get more spaces to put it so we don't have to think about it. But listen, it's not just about the stuff we buy. It's about what do, what do we think about the money and the power that we have? Whether you're old or young, whether you're married, whether you're single, money doesn't discriminate. It holds out security. It holds out fun. It holds out possibilities. And we start to squirrel it away and spend just a little and then a little bit more and then a little bit more because we think that we're going to find contentment in the things that we have. Maybe it's the, the, the power of acquiring things or, or uh, just making sure that when we're backing out of somebody else's driveway, we think, my house looks better than theirs. For as much as the Christians here know that we can't take any of it with us, our hearts are bound to this horizon. We think that this is all that there is. So you better live it up. Who cares about storing up treasures in heaven? Where's your hope at? Where's your peace? Is it uh, the newest iPhone? Is it having a Roomba? The best set of golf clubs? The shiniest car? Sweet kitchen remodel? What happens when you don't get those things? Are you mad? Are you sullen? Are you envious? There's a particular verse that God uses in this chapter to point right at our hearts. He doesn't leave us a lot of wiggle room because he sees that this desire for power, for wealth, for materialism, it lives in all of us. Verse 14, 
What's the fruit for which your soul longs for? Power isn't just money or things. Anything that becomes your boast, that's where your heart is. Maybe you're jockeying to be perceived in a certain way. I want to make sure, you know, my spiritual gifts are seen or that my talents are seen at work. Maybe your heart swells with pride because your kids are really, really successful. Or they're really well behaved even at a young age. They're put together. But when we get stuck on getting what we want, on keeping what we have, and prioritizing those efforts over worshiping the Lord God who made them all and gave them all, we ally ourselves with Babylon and with her demons and her uncleanness. And we get her coming doom, her plagues. That's what this is. God is showing that the things that our hearts cling to, if it is anything but Christ and Him crucified, it will one day perish. It will be shown for what it is. So these kings have cried over their immorality. Gone is Babylon. And merchants have cried. And now sailors and shipmasters, they join the chorus of lament in verses 17 through 19. That great city is gone. And we should note, there's some irony here, right? These people are, are crying. They're standing far off, afraid of her torment. And yet everything that they had, everything that they possessed, desired their identity, their purpose, it was over there. It was in Babylon. They are going down with the ship that they're crying over. It wasn't just work. It was their joy. It was their security and contentedness. Now listen. All these details are not to scare someone off from seeking a position of power. If the Lord puts it on your heart that you're going to run for city office or state office, whatever, a, a, a common day king or queen, that's fine. Pursue power. Pursue it justly. Pursue it rightly. And you can go and get an MBA. That's fine. Or a degree in finance. It's, it's fine to be a sailor. I don't think there are a lot of sailors in South Dakota, but you can do that if you want to do that. But these are portraits of human hearts that strive after wealth, after comfort, and after power. And we're supposed to see the, the black and the white, almighty God's power in contrast to their lavishness, their excessiveness, the, the supposed security they thought was there. So wealth, success, and power are not bad in and of, the, in and of themselves. But we're told that we have to come out of Babylon, and yet we know we're living in her midst. So how do we do that well? Because Babylon is out there, Babylon is in here. One author writes, it's going to require more than just a change of address. You can't just pick up and move out and, and somehow Babylon won't follow you. It's going to require a radical change of heart, a change in our affections and interests and desires. So let me give you two small application points within this first larger point. Get real about sin. Sin when it relates to wealth and materialism and, and power in that sense. Revelation should scare us in an appropriate way about where sin is hiding in our lives. You don't want to dismiss it. You don't want to downplay it. You don't want to just shrug your shoulders. 
with materialism and wealth, it's, it's easy to see. And I think sometimes we act like it's not. But you can sit in your living room if you want and look around at the stuff that you have. Or you could open up a bank statement or a credit card statement. Look and see if there are you know, discrepancies. How am I using what God has given me? Am I using it for me? Or am I using it for his kingdom? And I'm not saying no more fun, no more vacation, no more extras. But get real about where you're putting your trust and your joy. Where, where are you finding those things? Second, we're called to live distinctly. We can't escape Babylon, but we ought to look differently than those around us. For Christians, err on the side of contentment, not excess. Err on the side of used, not new. Err on the side of giving rather than taking or keeping. These aren't, you know, matter-of-fact rules. you gotta, you got to get them down. This is general principle stuff. We're living with our eyes on the next horizon, on the kingdom to come. Jesus said, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? He forfeits himself. I know some of you, you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck. I don't want to be insensitive to that. But again, money doesn't really discriminate. It takes hold of us. We, we think about it. It possesses our thoughts and our minds, whether we're on one side or the other. And regardless of who you are or where you're at or how big your bank account is, God's best blessing is not financial security. It's salvation. And you're going to hear from all the town criers in Babylon that you need more. That you have to have it. Right around Christmas, right? Everybody, you got to have it. Got to have it. And, and that you should also do whatever it takes to get it. But that is the ethic of this earthly kingdom. And you're not a member of this earthly kingdom. Jesus has said, come out. And he says it with power. And he says it with grace in his voice. John's vision is meant to wake you from your sinful sleep or, or rouse you away from the darkness of Babylon to the light of God's glorious grace. He shows us what Babylon really is. Is Babylon all her merchants and kings and wealth and power, her cinnamon and her jewels and pearls? It's nothing. Babylon is nothing. Babylon is a lie. It's been spun in a web of fascinating colors. It looks like the prostitute from chapter 17. It looks really alluring. It looks really good, but it's nothing. All that shimmers isn't gold. But that doesn't mean that all is lost. As judgment comes, we want to see how God reframes it. Judgment reframed, our second point. Because... The judgment of Babylon is a judgment on our behalf. Let's pick up again and read together at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great. The great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, 
of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And so we see in verse 21, another angel shows John what is to come. Babylon, metaphorically, is going to be tossed like a millstone into the sea. And this displays God's might and the ease of destruction. Babylon is nothing. It's like throwing a rock into a lake. It's easy. It's easy for God. This city, Babylon, it's sort of the picturesque place. I don't know if you've done any traveling lately, but it's sort of the combined New York City power with the artisanal Portland, the music scene of Austin, okay? Some of us want to travel to these places, I do. But you take them all and you mix them together and you've got bands playing, artisans creating, millers milling. And it's, it's bright, it's vibrant, it's a good-looking city, and people are getting married, and families are multiplying, and suddenly, it stopped. Deafening silence. Pitch black. The lights turned off. The people of this place, they serve as a symbol of the great wickedness of sin that has plagued the earth from the fall, and they are silenced. God has acted justly. The deceit of the merchants, we read in in verse 23, it was in full effect. The nations were deceived until God acted. Many bought their lives. Verse 24 likely speaks to many faithful Christians who gave up their sin, they professed Christ, and they were met with resistance, which happened in Rome certainly with martyrdom, and which still happens today. And as Babylon is is destroyed, we're commanded, we're told that we're going to rejoice. Look again at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So you're on the interstate, and you see... Uh, a, a big plume of black smoke off to the east. Maybe you're on your way from Sioux Falls back to Madison. And you see this, this, this big cloud of black smoke, and you're a curious person, so you decide, ah, I should go check that out. Maybe they can use my help. I don't know how you're going to help, but you're going to pull off. And you drive a little closer, and you start to see the flames, the, the, the orange glow. And you see the smoke is, is taller than you've ever seen, and you get a little closer, and now you can smell... The, the wood and the metal burning. And you get a little closer and you can hear people crying out in agony. That's a hard image, isn't it? You start clapping your hands. You start rejoicing. That seems strange. That seems unnatural until we remember what God is destroying and why. When you came to church today, you weren't sinless. I'm not sinless when I walk in these doors. Maybe you've had a great week. You've 
cared about your spouse well, you, you haven't said an unkind word, you've kept your patience at work, maybe you've kept your eyes pure, you weren't captivated by pornography. Maybe you were none of those things. And maybe everything was going just fine, you were having a great week, and then you got some awful news, some really terrible news. Something tragic happened and you didn't ask for it, you didn't plan for it, you didn't anticipate it. It's like a storm blowing up. Sunshine in 75, perfectly still, and then there's rain falling down. There's clouds overhead, and you are stuck. The reality of this world is that there is sin in us, and then sin comes at us, fallenness from all around, and God hates sin. And he tells us to rejoice as he destroys the sin that plagues, that wounds, that chases and confronts. Think of the worst thing that you've ever done. Gone. Think of the worst thing that's ever happened to you. It's gone. God is acting on his promise to eternally separate his people from sin and pain, and it is for you. Don't you want to rejoice? Don't you anticipate that day? Everything that ever was bad and wrong and hurtful in you and outside of you, gone. And yet there's that curious picture again that we've been told to come out of Babylon. There we are so often seeing God's judgment coming, feeling our guilty conscience, wrestling with sin, and we ask for a sword and a shield because I'm not going to lay this down. I'd rather take on God than, than lay this down. We are ready to stake our pride and our lives on defending sin, big and small. But God doesn't want us to be conquered by sin. He wants to conquer it for us in Christ. He even wants us at his side as he does it. There's a preview in the Psalms as God speaks to Israel. Here's a people who were to remove themselves from the uncleanness around them. And God says in Psalm 149, verse 6, Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. I don't want anyone to go home, start rummaging in the closet for the sword you bought in college, um, or current college students, don't go buy a sword. Uh, it is an honor to slay sin and to rejoice as Babylon burns in the future. But if you are still locked in, if you're arm in arm with the demons, the unclean beasts of Babylon, and you're engaged in your sin, and, and, and you're thinking, well, I'm not ready to give this up. I've got time. It's not that big of a deal. Frankincense and myrrh. Those weren't a big deal. Nor were jewels or gold. Scarlet cloth. And God destroyed Babylon in an hour. 
because they put their trust in these small things, these small sins. You and I don't have time to debate whether we're going to give up our lives and lay them down. Sister and brother, hear me, come out. You have nothing to fear. If God is coming with a sword, we, we think often that it's pointed at us. When God came, war, came to, to wage war against sin, he put his own sword against the throat of his beloved son, Jesus. Christ was made to be sin on your behalf and so received God's wrath willingly for you. There is no sin too small or grotesque. There's no thought too ugly, no action too vile. Come out and lay down your sword. Lay down the fruit for which your soul longs. Lay it down and receive Christ. There's a a beautiful exchange that happens for those that are made conquerors. Christ cleans you. Christ clothes you. Christ turns your wailing to rejoicing. And he takes all of the things that captivated your eyes, that gold and silver and the silk and the cinnamon, those things that you thought were going to fill you up and give you identity, and he shows you that it pales in comparison to his blood, to the freedom of forgiveness, of being fully known and loved. You are now secure and awaiting glory. We were the beasts of Babylon. By faith, we we have come out. We've been brought out, brought out from our shame and our pain and spitting at the Savior. We've gone from rebel to conqueror, enemy to friend. And it's strange. Christ tells you to pick your sword back up, and he sharpens it for you. And he gives it a new purpose. There's a reason that the Apostle Paul described the Christian life as warfare. Because the war has been won in Christ, but the battle has not ended. It is a call for all of us to wage war against sin. And to keep living distinctly in Babylon while we are here before Christ comes or before we are called home. Many of you have been Christians for many years. And maybe some of you, this is the first time you're hearing this. But you are not on your own in your battle against sin. You've been given this sword, but you've also been given the Spirit and God's Word, and you've been given the people on your left and your right. And so when God calls you to come out today, He calls you to something, and He does not call you alone. He calls you to Christ, and He calls you among your brothers and sisters. God's judgment reframed means knowing and trusting Christ and His Spirit to keep defending you, to keep fighting with you, to keep slaying sin with you until he returns. Judgment has already been rendered on your behalf. Christ guilty. You innocent. And you're given his righteousness. You are given his power. You are given his freedom. So hang on. Keep fighting. And come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in need of help. 
your word sometimes seems so strong it overpowers us, overwhelms us. Spirit, you have done your work to search out hearts and minds, to lay forth sin, to lay forth 